All right, turn with me to James chapter 4. We're going to jump back in, and I understand that with a break, there's always a bit of a disconnection. I hope you had a rich and wonderful holiday season. I did uh, what I wanted to do, which was generally a lot of nothing. Um, I travel a lot most of the year, and every day tends to have activity in it, and this holiday was... uh, really slow down, step back, enjoy time with the family. And uh, if there was any working done, it was, honey, what would you like me to do? And uh, that got me a head start on uh, husband of the year. So I made some progress, didn't get all the list done, but, uh, and you can ask Karen if she felt like I made progress, but I feel like I made a good investment. So I'm ahead of you. So you better pick up the pace for the voting that'll happen sometime later in the year. Well, our subject today is greater grace. I've been attempting to walk through in somewhat lengthy detail this significant section that I find incredibly relevant to the challenges that face us to be expressions of genuine Christianity. The theme of the book we're looking at is real Christianity, real faith, genuine faith, saving faith. It manifests itself in a particular way and real Christians behave in a particular way. And I've summarized 1 through 10, James chapter 4, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem to the people who have been disseminated like seed in the Roman Empire because of persecution. He's talking to them about real Christianity. And real Christianity in this section, and I'm going to summarize it as a beginning point, real Christians are those who are trusting and faithful friends of God. They are not manipulative, fickle friends of the world. If I were going to add words, and I'm inclined to do that, they are not hurtful, hateful, fickle friends of the world. Because if you're a friend of the world seeking satisfaction from the world around you, not from the God who created and saved you, you are inherently in conflict. You have a pleasure problem, an appetite for satisfaction that is inherent in your humanity. It's been corrupted by depravity, and the temptation, even if you're a Christian, is to seek the sense of necessary gratification through mechanisms and means that are outside a dependence on God. And that makes you worldly. And worldliness is a betrayal and a denial of God. I put in my notes here, by way of beginning, you undermine your faith and your influence. You misrepresent Christianity. I do and we do when we make the world the priority for your desires and their fulfillment. Those in it and the social structure, the system of world activity and world Uh, realities that you would look to for satisfaction. Worldliness is a perspective that prioritizes your desires over God and his desires. It's a pattern that is an inclination and a temptation and a propensity for all of us. It's a pattern that says, I'm going to pick the world as the source of my satisfaction. And not only does that create conflict, with those around you, because you want what they have, or they deny you their their barriers to achieving what it is you believe you need, or they're not supplying it, so you pressure them to give it. It creates conflict, not only with people and the world in which you're in, but it creates conflict with God, because James is going to say, friends of the world, those who seek satisfaction by association and relationship with the world as a source for their needs become enemies of God. Divine conflict, vertical conflict. And we have a problem. That problem is we become adulterous. We betray a relationship with God. We, the Christian, betrays God by seeking satisfaction with an illegitimate partner. God is the source of life. Real Christians recognize that everything I need comes from the fountainhead of life. Life that's truly life. Not artificial. We, have not, we are to not do as the Israelites did, 
forsake me, God talking, the fountain of living water, to dig for ourselves cisterns, that's water pots, broken water pots that can hold no water. Now, we're going to get a lot of rain. We've gotten a lot of rain. You can go out and I have a wash behind my home. I can go take a bucket and fill up the water that's coming down that wash. That wash water is not attractive for me to drink or bathe in. It is full of mud and debris accumulated from the runoff. That's what cisterns do. They catch runoff water. You don't want to drink it. You don't want to bathe in it unless you have no other option. The illustration from my Jeremiah is not only is the bucket you have full of polluted, impure water, but your container, it's broken. You can't hold it. That's what a Christian is doing. They're tra uh, trading a fountainhead of life, the fountain of living water, for a broken water pot that catches runoff water. Which is why so many of us are not full of life and joy because the source of our satisfaction isn't where the true source is. And it's not only a betrayal to God and creates conflict with people, it eliminates soulish satisfaction that is real Christianity. Because you know what? You're a reflection of the life of God in you and the reality of that life. So that's what James is talking about. And he's saying you have a problem. And despite, despite your appetite to satisfy yourself in illegitimate ways, God wants a relationship with you, and he's willing to give capacity for you to have it the way he designed it, which is the verse we're going to look at today and unpack as a beginning point. He offers greater grace. So let me read the first five verses. We'll jump into verse six. And for those of you that are guests today, I've been in this section a while. So this is going to be a high-speed, Lord willing, connection, and then we're going to jump into the rest of this passage that I'd like to finish in the near term, making no promises that that will happen today. What is the source? Verse 1, James. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Fighting with words, altercations, physical and verbal. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Pleasure, the pleasures of the flesh that you have a desire to satisfy internal to you and expressed with those around you. You lust, here's a description, you lust, you desire it, but you don't have it. So you do what it takes to get it. You're even willing to commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain. You want what you don't have that somebody else has, so you fight and you quarrel. What is the reason for the conflict? An insatiable desire for satisfaction here called pleasures, and we rehearse this, pleasures that choke the spiritual life of God, pleasure that corrupts your behavior before God, and pleasure that enslaves. That's what drives you, and you want it, you don't have it, so you fight and you injure in order to acquire it. Verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask which introduces you to the fact the solution is not horizontal or even internal. It's a prayer solution sourced by God. You don't have what you want by way of desire and need because you're not seeking the one who possesses the life you need and desire. Verse 3, you ask, so you may ask, most of you are not asking, but then you ask and you do not receive the motive problem because you ask with wrong motives, selfish motives, not God-centric motives, not other-centric motives, hairy-centric motives. And that inhibits and prohibits the fulfillment of that request so that, because it tells you here, verse 3, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Verse 4 consequence of that mindset and mentality, not asking, wrong motives if I do ask, the, 
the conflict that dominates my life and the unending engine to get it, even if I have to hurt you to have it. Verse 4, I'm an adulteress. You adulteresses. I'm a betrayer of a trust, a covenant relationship. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship, intimacy, companionship with the world is hostility toward God? You become an adversary of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world as a source of his satisfactions makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 5. Or do you think the scriptures speak to no purpose? And this is the general theme of the scriptures. No specific verse that says this. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. New American Standard, do you not know that God has a zeal for the spirit he has placed in you like a husband would for a wife? And it's a righteous, zealous desire, and he's made, he has that desire, which is why it's so much of a betrayal. The other way to interpret verse 5 is there is a spirit in us that has a longing for satisfaction outside of the will and the way of God. So despite the, the net effect of this is that we have a desire for the world, not God, natural to our depravity in Adam. You get up in the morning spring-loaded to self-satisfaction. You get up in the morning spring-loaded to find that satisfaction independent of God. That's a reality in the fall of Adam. That nature, that sin nature, is passed on. You enjoy a new nature, the Spirit of Christ in you, transforming you, but you have the flesh that you battle with. That's the other way to understand verse 5. So you have an internal problem, or you have an awareness that God takes this reality so seriously because he has a zeal that is likened to righteous jealousy for the relationship that he paid so much to secure. Verse 6. Despite the challenge and the reality. But, do you see it? The adversative, God gives a greater grace. For what? to fix that problem, to overcome that propensity, to restore the broken relationship through betrayal and infidelity, unfaithfulness to God. God gives greater grace. Greater than what? That. Grace, unmerited favor, I like to say, help from heaven. Divine horsepower. Not just sufficient grace, greater grace grace. Verse 6, he gives us greater grace. Verse 6, but to whom does he give it? What is the essential non-negotiable credential in order to secure help from heaven to satisfy a brokenness in my life that creates brokenness with God and brokenness with people? Humility. Verse 6, therefore, it says, God, that's the scripture, God is opposed to the proud. Those who won't admit it, those who don't see it, he's opposed to the proud. Those who rely on themselves, frequent pursuing of the world on their own to satisfy desires inherent in them, he is opposed to the proud, but gives grace. That's the greater grace to the whom? The humble. Now listen, alien to your humanity is desperate dependence on God. There is no Christianity that flourishes that is not desperately dependent on God to give what you can't create or secure on your own. Christianity is, I must be connected to God. Because I don't have what I need. So if you get up in the morning and you start your day unresourced, 
from divine horsepower in order to live the life he's called you to live so you can enjoy the abundant life that he came to give if you get up in the morning dependent on your human capacity, self-dependence. That's proud. And it denies you the very assets essential to live fruitfully and abundantly. Humble says, God, help me. It's not self-condemnation. It is objective recognition. I need help. I can't be the husband I should be. I can't be the father I should be. I can't be the wife I should be. I can't be the employee I should be. I can't be the kingdom citizen I should be. I can't be the influence I should be at all in any way. I am self-dependent or I am God-dependent. Humble is I'm God-dependent. Help me. God gives grace, greater grace, to those who are humble. Verse 7. Submit, therefore. Do you see the therefore? I'm going to argue the next 10 verbs, five different categories, highlight the demonstration of true humility. You go, I'm humble. I know I need God. But my life does not reflect the greater grace of God. Evaluate. Take your new year. Sit down this week with somebody you trust and love and cares about you and say, how do you think I'm doing? Because pride, by definition, is blindness. We say it periodically, he's blinded by pride. Well, that that is one of the essential definitions of pride. Pride is an over-high opinion, and it includes being in a cloud of my own misconceptions, which which requires what? Allies to objectively help Harry see what Harry doesn't see. Because the seeing of it is not not meant to humiliate me, but to illuminate me. Help me. This is an evaluation opportunity because these five categories represent true dependence on God in humility. Verse 10 sandwiches this idea of humility, humble yourselves. Do you see that? Humility is something you do. Humility is a choice you make, not a spiritual gift you receive. Humility is a choice you make. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Not oppose you, exalt you, elevate you, help you. Be victorious in the ways that are essential as a follower of Christ. Verses 7 through 9 are the 10 ways, or the 10 verbs that manifest five different ways of manifesting true humility. Look, it's a crying shame, worldliness, but the desire and grace of God is an immeasurable, I can't believe you would do this, reality and claim. God's saying, I want you and I will help you despite you. Isn't that good? It should be good. Because otherwise, you start the new year, you do your evaluation, and you go crawl in a hole. Or you live in denial. Or you own it and say, God will help me with it if I will humble myself. Humility manifested here, therefore, as a consequence of that recognition that humility is essential, here are the demonstrations of humility. These are all ingressive aorist verbs. You have to, and you need to do it now. Involves two things, no option and immediate. Number one, we've talked about it at length, submit to God. Submit is simply to say, I will follow you. You're the leader, I'm not. I'm going to arrange my life under your lordship and leadership. I'm not fighting, I'm kneeling. You say it, I do it. If you're in the military or have been, it's this, sir, yes, sir. This is God, I will obey, I submit myself to you. There is no Christianity that is vibrant, vital, genuine expression of a right relationship with God that doesn't involve submission to God. 
And that's not only right, it's fruitful. He deserves it, and you will flourish because of it. Submit to God. Number one, submission. Submit to God, and let me say it this way, freely and joyfully subordinate your will to God's will. Did you hear those words? Freely and joyfully. Hupotasso is the voluntary act of someone. It says, I get it, I recognize it, I'm going to do it. It's not making me bow, it's freely and joyfully subordinating my will to God's will, listen to this, in objective obedience. Number two, resist the devil. The second expression of humility, and we spent a long time on this because it's so central, you not only have conflict with people, you not only get into conflict with God, you have an enemy, and you're to resist the enemy. Stand against the devil. Confrontation is an expression of humility. Be ready and resolved to stand in the truth of your Christian testimony. This is submitting to God and resisting the enemy of God. You can't be worldly and not resist the devil. Or, or excuse me. You can't be spiritual and not resist the devil. Worldly means I'm capitulating to the influence of the devil. Be ready and resolve to stand in the truth of your Christian testimony and God's word. And we got that out of Ephesians chapter 6. You put on the armor of God. You're strong in the Lord. You buy into what he says. You prepare ahead of time. And you do everything to stand. Humility says, I hate the enemy of God and the controller and God of this world, and I'm going to resist him. And I know he's coming. I know he has influence. Every day's not an evil day, but on the evil day, when the temptation comes and the opportunity to self-gratify, I'm going to say no in the strength of the Lord and in the power of his word. Number three, the third expression, verse 7, or verse 8 rather, which is where we are today. Draw near to God. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Let me summarize it and then I'll unpack it. This is devotion. This is draw near to God and I'd like you to hear the word proactively pursue. Ingressive heiress, do this. Do it now. It's a proactive choice. This is humbling yourself. Drawing near to God, not to the world. Drawing near to God is to proactively pursue God's presence in daily devotion and weekly and week-long worship. Draw near to God is proactively pursuing God's presence in weekly and week-long worship and daily devotion. Draw near to God. Let me just highlight a few things for the benefit of your understanding. Draw near. It means what it says. It means to get close to, to approach, to come near. Classically in Homer's writings, it means to come near in proximity, move toward. The Old Testament reflects this idea in Ezekiel 40, verse 46, come to where the presence of the Lord was understood to be. So wherever the place where God is worshipped or sense where you experience Him or meet with Him, wherever His presence would be understood to be, you draw there, draw near to that, you move towards that proactively to worship and to minister to Him. Let me read you a couple of verses. This is Ezekiel 40, 46 where God is talking to his people through his prophet, and he says, These are the sons of Zadok, who are the only Levites who may draw near to Yahweh to minister before him. They come near to him in order to minister to him. Hebrews 10.1 The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves, for this reason, it can never, the law, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. 
So when you draw near to God, you're drawing near to God by way of example to minister to him, to minister on behalf of people to him and to worship him. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 21, when God is talking about the restoration of Israel and he says their nobles or their leaders, as opposed to a foreigner, their nobles shall be of themselves. In other words, the people who have been in captivity will enjoy a day when the leader is no longer somebody outside of them. It is a noble from their people. It shall be among themselves. Their ruler or their governor shall proceed from the midst of them, and I will cause him, this leader or governor, to draw near, and he will approach unto me, For who is this that engaged his heart to approach unto me, says the Lord. Now, let me just give you a little color commentary. Leaders in the future for Israel in the restored period are those who are going to be able to approach God. And they're going to be able to approach God to draw near to him, to engage their heart in a relationship with him, intimacy with him. The idea of drawing near is coming close. It is the proactive pursuit of being in a relationship with God which allows you to worship God. Let me give you some elements of drawing near just by some uh, other parallel passages or thoughts. And I'm going to call this applicationally the elements of drawing near. You draw near, Ecclesiastes 5.1, with your feet. Listen to to chapter 5, verse 1, Ecclesiastes. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer sacrifices of fools. I just want to grab on to the idea that you're guarding your steps as you go to the house of God to draw near. So the idea of drawing near with your feet, going to the worship place being involved in a space where you're going to hear the word of God. Drawing near means you're involved in the fellowship of God's people in order to hear the word that you listen to. So you draw near with your feet and you draw near with your ears. I don't know that you've been exposed to this particular disease, but it's a pandemic among God's people, sometimes worse than certainly COVID would be. It's called Morbus Sabbaticus. Morbus Sabbaticus, better known as Sunday sickness, is a disease peculiar to some church members. The symptoms vary, but they're generally observed to be these. Morbus Sabbaticus never lasts more than 24 hours. It never interferes with your appetite. It never affects your eyes. You can still watch television or pro football. Morbus sabbaticus, no physician has ever called. And after a few attacks at weekly intervals, it can become chronic, even terminal. No symptoms are usually felt on Saturday. The patient sleeps well and wakes feeling well. He eats a hearty Sunday breakfast. Then the attack comes (laughs) until services are over for the morning. The patient feels better, and they're over it for the morning, and he feels better. He eats a solid dinner, and after dinner, he takes a nap. Then he watches one or two pro football games on television. He'll take a walk before supper. He'll stop and chat with his neighbors. And then if Sunday services are held, another attack will come, a short one. Invariably, he wakes up Monday morning, rushes off to work, feeling refreshed. The symptoms may not recur until the following Sunday unless another service is scheduled at the church during the week. Morbus (laughs) sabbaticus. Yeah, I did what you did, laughed, but there's some truth to that, right? We can get up early to go hunting or fishing or to a football game or to enjoy an outing and somehow... The priority pursuing drawing near is a proactive pursuit to be in a place where the word of God is taught, the house of God as it's reflected in Ecclesiastes. You do elements of drawing near, you do it with your feet, you do it with your ears so that you can listen and learn. I don't know who assessed this, but 
a survey says that the average Christian, and I'm putting quote unquote, spends less than 10 minutes a week with their Bible open reading it. You can't draw near without hearing from the Word of God, which is why daily devotions are so critical. Listen, it's not a box to check. It's a life to experience. It's the, it's the demonstration that I need from God's word to hear because I don't know how to be what I'm supposed to be and I don't have what I need. Humility says I've got to have time in God's word in the morning. I've got to listen because I need to hear what he is wanting to say. I want to argue, too, that there's an element of drawing near with your mouth. I get this out of Psalm 145. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. So there's this element of calling upon God in prayer, honoring God in praise. Listen to Isaiah 29, verse 13. Wherefore the Lord said, for as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth and their lips honor me. Now, I think you'll know what's coming. But before I get to the fact, but their heart is not connected to their mouth, I just want to argue that your mouth is involved in drawing near. And that honoring God with your mouth is part of drawing near in worship to him. Your heart does have to be involved. Verse 29, Isaiah, or chapter 29, verse 13 goes on to say, They draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips they do honor me. This is also found in Matthew 15, verse 8. But they have removed their heart from me. And their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. In other words, drawing near to God is treating God as God deserves to be treated. And it starts with an attitude of your heart, a sincerity of your heart, a rightful regard, honor from your heart. Drawing near is seeing God correctly and treating God rightly. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, and I'll just let you take a look at this section because it's relevant to our journey. I am confident you have heard these words, but we're going to begin in verse 19 to set the stage for what's coming in verse 22. Now, now look up for a second. Humility requires drawing near. It is a proactive pursuit of God. It involves worship and praise and prayer. It involves listening and learning from the Word of God. And if it's a Sunday or when the people, a Bible study or a place like this where the Word of God is taught, you're proactively pursuing it. It's immediate and non-negotiable. Verse 19, talking about the greater supremacy of the work of Christ and the benefit of his work on our behalf. Verse 19, chapter 10, Hebrews. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, what is the holy place? The abode of God. Not an animal sacrifice, but a personal God-given Lamb of God sacrifice that makes it possible for me to come face to face in the holy place with God without fear. Confidence to enter the holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice, his life for my life. Verse 20 describes it as a new and living way because Jesus is living. It's new, not Old Testament animal sacrifices, which he, Jesus, inaugurated or initiated for us through the veil. The obstacle to the holy place of God has been removed because he gave his life, his flesh. So we have, listen to me, unlimited, intimate, confident access to God. So when he says, draw near, we can draw near because of the work of Christ. Verse 21, since we have a great 
priest over the house of God. So not only do we have unlimited intimate access, we have an understanding eternal advocate, somebody like us, but somebody who didn't die, somebody who lives, whoever lives to advocate for us. Because we have access, because we have an advocate, verse 22, let us do what? Draw near. Let us take advantage of coming to God to do what? To minister to God, to worship God, to praise God, and to seek help from God. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. That's a true heart. That's a a heart that has genuine desire in full assurance of faith because I'm confident that I can come because of his work, not my merit. And our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That has to do with cleansing. And the next next, uh, priority of humility involves cleansing. (laughs) Cleansing is essential to drawing near, and drawing near involves a sincerity of heart and a confidence and a desire to access the very presence of God. So can you draw near to God? Yes, you can. Must you draw near to God? Yes, you must. Humility says, I need you, I want to worship you, and I seek you. I'm seeking you, and the promise, and this is the guarantee of this section, the promise is, and if you'll draw near to him, what will he do for you? Guaranteed, predictive future, he will draw near to you. That's a promise. So you proactively pursue him. It is not possible for God not to draw near to you. You seek him, you will find him. You draw near to him to hear from him. You draw near to him with a sincere heart. You draw near to him to learn and listen and grow. Guess what will happen? You'll experience God. You know what that is? Awesome. Do you know what that is? An expression of humility and a great benefit to all who come, knowing they need him, drawing near to him. Listen to Psalm 73, verse 28. But as for me, the psalmist says, the nearness of God is my good. Look over to uh, chapter 7, Hebrews. It's talking about Jesus having a superior order of priesthood, the order of Melchizedek. And it talks about that connection at the end of verse 15, talking of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. So Christ is after an order of Melchizedek, which has this indestructible eternal life capacity. Verse 17, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, referring to Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment, that's Old Testament law, because of its weakness and uselessness. In other words, it cannot do what we need it to do permanently and ultimately. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is, watch this, verse 19. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. There is an inherent, intrinsic conviction of hope that Jesus is a better priest. He's an alive advocate. He ever lives to provide help and support in engaging God and doing the things of God. And I have that hope. And through that hope, that better hope, not the law, not good enough, Harry, not I'm fulfilling all my obligations, but I haven't fulfilled them all. But Jesus satisfied my debt. Jesus made a way for me that my good deeds cannot secure. And that way is open. It's intimate. I have an ally when I meet with God. And when I meet with God, I have the hope that I'll enjoy him, be received by him, and experience the life provided through him. I'm a Christian with wide open access to God, which is why that veil was rent 
when Jesus said, it is finished. Now listen, Christianity is about a relationship with God. It's not just behaving in a way that looks religious. Draw near to him. Weekly and daily. Drawing near to God because that, the nearness of God, is your greatest good. I want to add one more thing. Zephaniah 3, 1 and 2 talks about what drawing near is not. As a reference to Jerusalem, the people of God, under the judgment of God, the Spirit of God gifted us with this perspective. She did not draw near to her God. Now listen to the the characteristics of a I don't draw near. Verse 2. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction and she did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Just kind of at the end of this little punctuated point is what drawing near is not. It's not heeding God's voice. It's not accepting God's instruction and it's not trusting in the Lord. Draw near to me. Turn over to... uh, 2 Chronicles 15. It's a little illustration, uh, Old Testament illustration of this idea of drawing near to God, and he's going to draw near to you, seek God, he'll let you find him. The people of God have been away from the ways of God, and along comes a good man, the grandson of Rehoboam, who abandoned God, was unfaithful, and uh, his son Abijah. And then in verse chapter 14, you get introduced, excuse me, his son Jeroboam, and you get introduced to Asa. Asa is the grandson of Rehoboam. The good news about Asa, verse 2, chapter 14, Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God, For he removed the foreign altars and high places. He tore down the sacred pillars. And he cut down the Asherim, which were the uh, fertility idols. And he commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers. Another synonym or similar to draw near. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord. Draw near to the God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. Go over to chapter 15. The Spirit of God, verse 1, came on Azariah, the son of Oded. So this is the prophet, Spirit of God talking through the prophet. Verse 2, and he went out, the prophet of God, inspired by the Spirit of God, went out to meet Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the southern tribes, The Lord is with you when you are with him. Now watch this. And if you seek him, translated draw near to him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without the law. Now just look up for a minute. Verse 3 says, They weren't hearing from God. They weren't getting instruction from God. They, verse 3, they had many days where Israel was without a relationship with the one and only God. They were disconnected. Verse 4, but in their distress, what kind of distress? Persecution. What kind of distress? Invasion. What kind of distress? Difficulty. But in their distress, they turned to Yahweh, God of Israel, and they sought him, and he let them find him. Here is an illustration of God talking to God's people. And you may have been in a season of disconnection where you don't feel connected to the true God. You're not enjoying hearing from the voices that communicate the truth of God. And distress may come. And that distress may make you desperate. And instead of drinking from a straw, trying to find life, or extract benefit 
in such small means and, and tools, you can instead seek Yahweh. Draw near to him. He will let you find him. And you will enjoy the life that comes from him. You will be blessed by the drawing near. The guarantee is that he will let you find him. All right. Turn with me. Man. Five minutes. Do we make a run at the next one? You're saying, I have no opinion, Harry. You decide. All right, let me show the seed. Stay in Second Chronicles. Because the next thing says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Cleanse your hands, O sinners, has to do with the activity of sin and the means of seeking self-satisfaction, missing the mark by seeking self through the world rather than God. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Humility says, I know I have dirty hands. The instruments of my life are dirtied by my pursuit of worldly things. I'm missing the mark of trusting God. I'm seeking the world. And this section in James says, remove it, stop it. Your hands are soiled. They're dirty. Cleanse them. Clean them. Wash them. This is all Old Testament imagery. Before the priest could go in to meet in the presence of God to draw near, what did he have to do? Sacrifice and wash his hands in the brazen laver because he couldn't go unclean into the presence of God. And what James is saying is, you have to remove the stuff that dirties your hands. If you're a surgeon and you're going into surgery and you're going to deal with a physical life, what do you do? you got to scrub. If you're a Christian and you're going to engage God, you need to scrub. This morning I was loading this fountain pen. It's a piston filler, which is you pull the back, pull the pen apart, you stick it in an ink bottle, deep blue, Japanese ink, beautiful color. Talk about a mess. Pulled it out, put it in the bottle. Harry looked like I had been in an ink war with my hands. So what did Harry do? Well, I'm going to church. I'm going to talk to God's people. I'm even, even gesture, and they're going to see all this stuff on my hands. So what do you do? Scrub. Scrub it until it comes off. Cleanse your hands is scrub it until it comes off. Stop it. Deal with it. When you engage in the world and in the things of the world, you have dirty hands. And James says, you've got to draw near to God. You can't draw near to God unless you deal with the activity that makes your life unacceptable to God. You need to confess and repent. You need to remove the idols and the source of false satisfaction. And you need to purify your heart. The word purify means to consecrate your heart. I'd like to say it this way. You need to have resolved convictions in your heart. I'm not chasing the world. I'm going to do what it takes to find satisfaction in God and in the things of God alone. And I'm done with chasing the world and the things of the world. I renounce it. I'm purifying my heart because I've been double-minded. I go to church. I go to Grace Church. I'm listening to Harry. I'm going to listen to the preacher today. I want to follow God. And then on Tuesday or Wednesday, satisfaction isn't sufficient. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to pull out one of my options that don't involve God. And I'm going to self-satisfy. Justified self-centeredness. God's not providing. I'm tired of waiting self-satisfied. Double-mindedness says, I'll rely on God until I can't or I won't. Resolved consecration says, resolved conviction says, I'm going to purify my heart. I'm not going to be double-minded. I'm all in with God, and if I die all in with God, I die, but I'm all in with Him. And I'm going to remove this stuff 
that competes with him. All right, I told you to stay in 2 Corinthians, but I'm done with this. I want to give you the illustration while we're here. Asa. So Asa heard these words. Verse 8, chapter 15, 2 Chronicles. Now when Asa heard these words and the prophecy... which Azariah the son of Oded the prophet spoke, the prophecy that says you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. He took courage and removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. And he restored the altar of the Lord. So he removed the competition and he drew near to the Lord by establishing that altar. Verse 16. We're hurrying, so you can read this on your own time. Verse 16, watch this. He also removed Makah, the mother of King Asa. It was actually his grandmother. He removed his grandmother from the position of queen mother because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah. That's an idol, fertility goddess. And Asa cut down her horrid image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook Kidron. All right, so here's my closing illustration for you. What does it take to draw near? Pure hands, clean heart. How much do you have to do everything necessary to remove the competition? Even if it involves your grandmom. (laughs) Even if it involves your grandmom's favorite thing. And you don't just take it or remove it, you crush it. The reason I wanted to end here is I want you to see the zeal that is connected to a sincere desire to seek God and be helped by God. No exceptions, no exclusions, no thing or no person. Whatever it takes to have clean hands and a pure heart, I want to do. That's not only humility, that's essential to experience and see God and enjoy the greater grace that comes from God. Does that make sense? All right, we got one more to go, and then we'll be able to plant the flag on this 10-verse section. Father, thank you for the richness and the relevance of this section of Scripture. What a great time of year to assess, to evaluate, to consider. Lord, the the approach, the mindset, the patterns, the habits of my life that either advance the things of God or are barriers to it. And I pray, Lord, that we will be submitters to God, resistors of the enemy, the enemy of God. Lord, that we will be drawing near to God and we will be cleaning up in a way that allows us to experience the full, rich pleasure of the presence of God. That's my prayer for us all as we begin our new year together. We all need and desire greater grace. Help us to humble ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. And again, happy new year.